Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. As we've been bringing you conversations about different aspects of sleep medicine, I've noticed some common themes, and one of them most definitely has been innovation. The explosion of technology into healthcare, consumer devices, artificial intelligence, precision medicine, they're here, and they're changing the way we practice sleep medicine. To bring it all together for us, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Azizi Satius to the show. Dr. Satius is an assistant professor at NYU Langone Health in the Department of Population Health and the Department of Psychiatry. He served as chair of the recent AASM Sleep Medicine Disruptors Program and speaks frequently on the use of technology to improve health outcomes. He was honored as one of the top 100 inspiring Black scientists in America by Cell Press for the second year in a row. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Satius. Thank you for having me. I am so delighted um, to be here and congratulations again on the podcast. I think this is huge because we can reach so many people globally and I'm just so delighted to be one of your guests. Well, thank you. And, and speaking of reaching people globally, congratulations right back to you for Disruptors. I thought it was really well done. So tell me about it. And what was the message that you really hope was received by our audience? Thank you. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the success of Disruptors really was not a one-person activity. It really was a team. And the staff of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, as well as we had over 20-something wonderful luminaries and, um, and experts in the field, and they presented for two days, and we loved that, and we were so excited. And here was the thesis and the vision for Disruptors. What we wanted to do was that we wanted to normalize disruption and to normalize innovation. We know that sleep medicine and sleep and circadian sciences are rapidly evolving. And what we don't want to happen is we don't want to leave the folks in our academy and the folks in sleep field and circadian science, we don't want to lead them astray. We wanted to bring a conference and a course that will increase their literacy about our greatest technologies and innovations as well as emerging technologies. But we, don't, we didn't want it to be a, a conference or a course that focused on gadgets or techie things. In fact, the vision that we have is that innovation is any particular process in which you can reduce a very complex process into a simpler, more parsimonious one and a more efficient one. And so what we do need for our sleep field is that we're going to need to face disruption. We're going to need to face innovation or else what we may have is that you will have other folks outside of our field moving on it and dictating where we go. And I think we need this. We also need this because the people that we serve need us. And so when we see that health inequities are increasing in some groups, 
when disparities are increasing, where people are paying more for care but getting less quality, that we realize that we got to stop here. This is the generation of sweep and circadian clinicians that need to stand up to say that we are going to take care of the people that we serve. It's one of the most sacrosanct virtues and values of being in this field. And so we need our best ideas. We need our brightest folks to be part of this. And this is what we wanted to do. We wanted to start to build a coalition and a community of people to do this type of work. So help me with this. I I feel like we are all overworked and that we are perpetually in survival mode. So how do you continue to disrupt? I mean, how do you come up for air? (laughs) So I think, you know, I'm not the only one doing this. I know you are doing it and others are. So it's important. It's important that innovation needs to be, you know, um, just a natural process. So one of the things that we did in Sleep Disruptors was to make the case that we need to reimagine healthcare. We got to reimagine healthcare in terms of education, in terms of clinical care, in terms of research, in terms of venture, meaning our relationship with the private sector. And lastly, we need to reimagine how healthcare um, provides outreach and service to the community. And so in order for me to do this and in order for us to do this, we need an entire army. So what drives me personally is this idea of kenosis. So I was a philosophy major in undergrad. um, And this idea of kenosis, a Greek word where it's a form of self-emptying. But it's a form of self-emptying because you're giving off yourself. Not that I'm a martyr, not saying that, because we all do this, right? We all do right. this. But my commitment and my hope is that when we empty ourselves, this becomes less of a job and a career, but more of a vocation where it's something that we're doing beyond ourselves. And so I'm committed to innovation, not because I want to seem cool or to do the coolest things. I mean, that has an appeal because in some ways, I think I'm a technologist at heart. <laughs> but it's important to realize that when we, re- when we see that there aren't enough sleep clinics out there to serve the great need that we have in the community, when there aren't enough clinics to serve the need, then what we need to do then is that we need to turn everything on its head and to say, how do we reach these individuals? And that's the purpose of disruption. So in sleep medicine disruptors, we spoke about what does it mean to be disruptive? And we spoke about frameworks as to how to be disruptive. And the thesis that we're making is that medical school education and anyone who does or has some form of training you know, innovation and disruption needs to be part of their regular training. So when people come out of medical school, we don't want them just to be good physicians and providers, but we want them to develop new solutions, not just technology solutions, but solutions of care and workflow so that we can better reach people. And that is the key. That's what we want to be able to do. 
You know, Dr. Safwan Bader paid you a wonderful compliment. And I think it really appeals to me as a, as a Canadian who grew up <laughs> in hockey, <laughs> playing hockey yes. with my brother. So he described you as someone who went to where the puck was going to be and not where it is now. It's kind of what people used to say about Wayne Gretzky. And so I think that this really fits with what you are trying to create. And so in the spirit of that, when you're trying to anticipate where the puck is going to be, how do you keep yourself in check and not go down a rabbit hole? So that's a great question. And when the great Dr. Bader, um, you know, provides um, such a superlative um, and to be compared to Wayne Gretzky, which I know it's (laughs) almost blasphemous, you know, um, you know, speaking to a Canadian, um, I am very humbled by that. Um, So so it's important that any solution that we develop, we do it in concert with the community meaning the end users. So all of our studies, all of our programs that we create, we have a community steering committee who represent many people across the the ecosystem of stakeholders, patients, payers, providers, industry folks. It's important because it provides a degree of balance so that we know that whatever products or solutions that we are developing, will have some public health impact, but also will have a very clear value proposition. And so it's important that we don't just develop ideas because it adds to scientific value. That is important as well. But it's important to ground your new innovations and technologies and solutions in what the community wants. And oftentimes we co-create these solutions with the community and the stakeholders, but also it allows us to develop clear value propositions so that when we roll those out into the community or whichever space, that it will increase the uptake of those solutions. So you're always checking in then? Always. To reground yourself. Always. And we do, we, we, we have quarterly meetings with our community <laughs> committee. And these are folks who are users, right? Mm. So, you know, we have folks who were guidance counselors, folks who were teachers, folks who were firefighters, you know, folks um, who were bus drivers. Um, We have lawyers, we have doctors, we have a wide cross-section of community steering committee members who keep us grounded, but sometimes also they provide us ideas and insights because I don't want to take this imperialistic view that I, as a researcher or clinician, is the only one who has a premium or a monopoly on good ideas. In fact, it's the opposite, that this both bottom-up and top-down approach where we're both co-creating a solution, that is the most important um, um, thing that we need to focus in on. So talk to me about the NYU hackathon. Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the things that we realized um, in our work with the community, we would go to barbershops and hair salons and faith-based organizations and food pantries. And one of the things that we realized that we were bringing things like an iPad or we'd have or mobile applications and, and all our different tech devices. And we realized that we needed to do more in the co-creation process. And it spurred us to say, well, 
whenever we go out to the community, people often say, well, why do I have this device in my house? Are you sure you're not tracking me? Mm-hmm. I heard all these different things in the papers, on the news, that you're going to steal my identity. And, and, and some of them, and some of those fears and concerns are legitimate. But what that made us realize is that we needed to create an environment in which we would educate the community. And so we created the NYU Healthcare Hackathon because of the fact that we wanted to raise the literacy about big data, as well as data science and machine learning and AI. Not in those jargony ways, of course, we didn't do that. But we wanted to raise the literacy, but we also wanted people to become better consumers of technology. And in order for us to do that, we needed to have a community-based program where we said, hey, this is an area that is you know, affecting healthcare. We're bringing you together in teams. So we'd have a physician, we'd have a community member, we'd have a pair, we'd have an engineer, all on one team. And they had to come together for an entire day to solve an issue. And so when you do that, it's something that Clayton um, Christensen from the Harvard Business School talks about um, solution shops. We've kind of revamped that idea of solution shops because typically solution shops are specific to healthcare, whereby you get a multidisciplinary team to solve an issue. What we're saying is that we trust the intelligence of the people who we serve and we trust the intelligence of everyone in the ecosystem to come together to solve our most vexing healthcare issues. And so we needed to create a platform and a medium by which people could actually do so. And so what we had was not just increasing the literacy about technology, and not just making people more aware of as to how they could be better users and consumers of data and technology, but we got them to start the process of communicating with each other and co-creating with each other. And that is something that we're lacking. So that is the impetus behind the NYU Healthcare Hackathon. And I was so happy that the American Academy of Sleep Medicine loved that idea. And we brought that to this year's disruptors. And we're now bringing it into this new Sleep Disruptor Change Agents program. So this is the impetus because when we're developing new solutions at technologies, it's not just creating it from the top down. It's building it from the bottom up, and we need to provide enough outreach and educational programs to do this. Well, when you were describing it, I thought, well, gosh, this sounds a lot like what the um, Change Agents competition is about. So clearly, this was the inspiration. It was certainly the inspiration, but we also have a vision and a plan. And our vision and plan is to make our academy the preeminent Um, health society. And in order for us to do this, to put sleep on the map, is that we got to bring in more stakeholders. And sometimes these stakeholders may not be scientists or clinicians. They may be from the community. They might be celebrities. They might be big tech. But we have to set the agenda as to how we want them to partner with us. Because at the end of the day, We're not trying to solve sleep here. We're trying to save lives. And since we know that sleep is important to people's lives and wellness, then we got to get rid of all our egos. 
And we got to say, hey, can you help or not? And as long as you're not doing anything wrong, then I welcome these individuals to this community. And I think sleep is such a vogue topic now. It's the hottest topic out there. <laughs> right? It is. And in fact, one of my things, my biggest issues is that the folks who aren't trained in sleep are considered more experts than us. Now, I'm not saying that this is a celebrity competition at all, but we got to control the marketing mm. of how people ingest and process information about our studies on clinical care as it relates to sleep. And we got to get ahead of that. We must get ahead of that. So this kind of gets to what you were talking about before, about data is king. But you mentioned that our data literacy is poor. What do you mean by this? I think so. And, and I mean, right across the board, I think even within our own field, as well as the, the larger community. So in terms of you know, data literacy being low or poor, it has to do with what is actual data, right? Um, and the different types of data. So you could have subjective data and objective data. That's how we were naturally schooled. But there are other forms of data. Once you get into the landscape of big data machine learning, it's categorized differently as structured and unstructured, right? So structured primarily has to do with data that already is labeled or semi-labeled. Unstructured, um, are, they don't have labels per se. And this is you know, kind of you know, visual data or even noise data, where um, we're just getting, you know, large, diverse streams of data. So that's one era. People don't know that. And the reason why that is important is because we have this very superficial, I think, conversation about, well, you know, bad data in, bad data out. It's, it's, it, I understand that. And, and, I, and I agree with that to a certain extent. But it's really the quality and the type of data and the source of the data. So that's one area. I think the other area with regards to poor data literacy is the metrics, right? So how do we quantize these data? Um, what are the sources of these data? And then in terms of how we can process these data, and I think we all kind of focus on that a lot because we all as researchers want to process and to, to mangle the, the, the data, right? <laughs> Because we want to rush through finding um, meaning, right? Right. But also, it's how we interpret those data as well is another area in which I believe our data literacy is low and poor. And I think stitching all of those components together, I think overwhelmingly, there is this general low literacy to data. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't be improved at all. I'm not one of those folks who say, well... You know, I'm this erudite person who does machine learning and everyone else who is interested in big data is just in it because of the hype. I am not. In fact, the more people doing it, the merrier. Mm. However, it is also important for us to educate folks. So this is why I serve as vice chair of the AI and machine learning subcommittee for the academy, because we want to be able to provide that service to the members of the academy to improve their literacy as it relates to data. And there's so many things going on now that we are not sure about. So what types of data should we include? Should we only include sleep? 
and circadian data. So what happens to environmental data? What happens to energy data? What happens to policy data? Those can also have an impact on some health and wellness outcomes that may be directly linked to sleep or indirectly linked to sleep. So those are the different, that's the universe and my definition of um, data literacy. So it's definitely more complex, right? It's not as straightforward. It is complex. It is complex, but I think we have a a tremendous amount of brain power in our academy Mm -hmm. with people like yourself who led the first sleep medicine disruptor. So kudos to you for, you know, engendering and planting that seed of innovation in our academy. I was just so honored to take that baton and move with it. And I'm sure others who come after will do so. But we do have the brain power. We do have the people. What we do need is a more concerted, structured vision. And I know our new director for the National Center for Sleep Disorder Research, Dr. Mariska Brown, has that squarely in her bullseye, trying to improve upon you know, how sleep is considered big data and to study sleep as big data and to look at how sleep can be studied in big data. Because it's important that we address all of those three primary research domains. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll get more insights on innovations that are disrupting sleep medicine. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Register today for Virtual Sleep 2021. Attend lectures from leading sleep researchers and clinicians. Browse the exhibit hall and view the latest research in the poster hall. The sleep meeting is a must attend for anyone in the field of sleep medicine and sleep and circadian research. Learn more at sleepmeeting.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Azizi Satius about the future direction of sleep medicine. So one of the takeaways I got from our conversation last week, and you kind of hinted at this earlier, is that innovation isn't about technology. It's about looking at the same problem in a different way. Tell me more about this. Yeah, so I think innovation is a hard concept to wrap around. Why is that so? Is because once you label it or define it, then you're going to say, people are going to say, well, is it not that? I think for me, the spirit of innovation is one in which we are cultivating new ideas, new workflows, new products, new theories that will allow us to take what we learned from the past but also provide us with theories that will allow us to forge forward in the future. And so whenever we're talking about innovation or disruption, because disruption is a form of innovation. Right, right, absolutely. Exactly. Because, you know, typically when people talk about disruption, it means as if that you're being a nuisance or it's seen negatively. Exactly. It's seen negatively, but it isn't. No. And what we tried to do squarely was to deconstruct the word disruptive. That disruptive is key. That disruptive is necessary in order for um, sleep and circadian science to evolve. 
that it must have this undercurrent of innovation and disruption. So you mentioned earlier about being vice chair of the AI subcommittee. And, and you know, we've, we've talked about this before, that when we talk about AI and machine learning, scoring is an obvious use of this technology. But where are some other ways that you think we could deploy this technology to our field of sleep and circadian science? Uh, fantastic. So that's a, a brilliant question. So, you know, one of the things that I was able to uh, I'm, you know, crystallizing my own thinking, and I've published a lot, and continually, you know, publishing on, is this vision of precision and personalized population health. And within this framework, we have um, what we call a continuum of 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 translational research from discovery all the way to treatments and solutions. And so, if we were to just look at discovery, and discovery primarily means can we find new mechanisms and causes and etiologies of sleep health and wellness and disorders? Um, and so what we're saying is that, yes, we have big data already. We have some population-based data. But what we might be a little bit kind of shackled by is the fact that we're using old um, devices and old metrics. So, for example, apnea, hypopnea. Yes. The AHI is 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 perhaps you know one of the most revered and controversial constructs <laughs> we have out there. Um, and in some ways, depending on your audience, you have to be careful as to how you coach it. And so, the point I'm making is that. The AHI might be important, but I know there are some other folks who are looking at this more cardiopulmonary construct. Because if you're looking at sleep apnea, it's not just the pulmonary components that increases risk. There is also a system type of risk that perhaps with a new instrument, we might be able to find a more predictive and proximally predictive risk factor to sleep apnea, as well as determining risk and severity, as well as prognosis based on treatments. And so what I am trying to do with this precision and personalized population health approach is we are gonna try and deconstruct the mainstream views as to the metrics that we use, but also we're saying that we can't be just wedded to the usual suspects. What if there are other metrics that we could ascertain and measure with new technologies, with new devices that may shed greater light on how um, sleep apnea or sleep disorders or sleep health is engendered, maintained, and treated? And that's what discovery does. Now, with regards to treatments and solutions, there are so many opportunities and the work that we're currently doing at NYU is to use AI and machine learning to optimize care. So we can, you know, not just, you know, in optimizing care in the clinic, but optimizing care at homes. So we could use home-based testing to gather a wide variety of data. We're currently doing this the last year. Because of COVID, we all had to pause, but we were able to pivot, pivot nicely where we have developed this 
really sophisticated and elaborate health kit with over eight different devices where we're ingesting data from that individual in real time continuously over a seven day period. And we can do some processing of those data and calculating and coordinating different factors that might be associated. So we're looking at biological data, we're looking at psychosocial data, we're looking at behavioral data, we're looking at environmental data as well, all from Internet of Things devices, which is an area that we need to move on. So this is not a sleep issue, this is a healthcare issue as well. And so we can get ahead of this as a sleep field because what we do know is that air quality significantly affects someone's sleep, not just duration, but also quality. Yeah. And so if we can create platforms in which people can gather those data in real time over a long period of time, then we can start to identify new causes, new mechanisms of disease and wellness. So you told me um, last week that we need to bring people who, you know, don't think like us, you know, not just clinicians and research people. So who else needs to be at the sleep table when we reimagine healthcare? So, you know, one of the things that I've learned working with the American Heart Association in several advisory roles is the fact that they have a place for clinicians, researchers, community advocates, industry, but also celebrities. And I know I might get a little bit of a flack for this. <laughs> I, 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 I might, but, but here's why it's important. I've realized that there's certain things that I am good at and certain things that I'm not good at. And we have to realize this as well as a collective personality of, of the academy. So if we can be providing the best science, but if it's science that's not going to be received well, or if it is marketed, it's marketed poorly, then we then must find the right avenue and the right people to allow us to do this. So that what the American Heart Association does is they'll have people like Star Jones or Angela Bassett, where they know someone in their family who has diabetes or died from a heart attack or have some kind of cardiovascular disease. And they become amplifiers of the message because they can reach more people. And so this is what we can do as a sleep field as well, where we need to realize that the last thing people want to do is to listen to some kind of stoic erudite, you know, <laughs> clinician. I know you are much more well received in public than I am. So, you know, that oh, may I not doubt that very much that may not apply <laughs> to you, but, but they're not going to listen to us. The public will not. They, they, they will not. And it's the type of message, right? Because what we do know is that there's mounting evidence showing that sleep is important for health and wellness and function and overall well-being. But, so how do we do this, right? Yeah, because you're I, talking I think, about breaking down these communication silos and you had described it as the kids at the front of the class ignoring the kids at the back of the class. Yeah, I think I've said this. I mean, that's the closest analogy where, you know, the kids who sit at the, the front of the class, these are the, the folks who are super brilliant. And 
they're like the teacher's pet, so to speak. And I'm not saying that our folks are like that. But the point I'm trying to, 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 to bring across is the dynamic as opposed to personas. And it's the idea that the kids who sit at the front of the class ignore the kids at the back, even though the kids at the back may actually have a lot of great value. And so what we need to do is that though we may consider ourselves as clinicians as well as scientists, that we perhaps may be the, the guards uh, of, of protecting the sanctity and veracity of sleep, but we also need to bring in other folks who have other views as well. So the kids sitting at the back of the class, because oftentimes the kids who are sitting at the back of the class, they're seen as jokers, you know, they're seen as, you know, kind of, you know, you know, what we call, um, you know, classroom clones or jokers or something like that. And so I am not saying that anyone who is not a scientist or a clinician is such, but it's more the dynamic that if you are having a robust discussion in the classroom or the corollary being in the sleep field, then we must actually value everyone's voice because all, all voices have an important message to you know, really effectuate the change and to ensure that our message gets to all corners and crevices of this globe. And it's one of the ways then by inviting them to the table? Or we got to invite them. Yeah, we got yeah. to invite them and we got to do some cool, interesting things. So, for example, um, in our you know, in a large sleep meeting um, or, or large conference meeting, you know, for the plenary or the kickoff. Yeah, we want to be able to chat with folks and these folks, these celebrities serve as volunteers and they use your influence and platform to make the bidding and the case um, for, for, for that society. We can do something quite similar, but we gotta know what our vision is, you know? So we can't just bring in folks and say, hey, do this for us if we don't have a clear vision. And so the clear vision is this. The clear vision must be that we want people to sleep well, have good sleep health, so that they can have overwhelm good health and wellness. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do that by one, doing the research that is necessary to always add knowledge so that we're continually communicating the right message at the right time to the right people so we can provide cutting edge research and science that's up to date. But we also need to ensure that we are finding and aligning with marketing strategists um, who could, you know, you know, run that particular vertical and arm of the academy and our field so that the message gets out there. Instead, what we're relying on is we're relying on when a large big study comes out and a news agency reaches out to us and say, oh, we'd like to get your feedback. We'd love to hear what you think about this. And that just cannot work. We cannot rely on that. Instead, we got to go on the front foot and we got to have a vision saying, this is what we need to do. So there are areas that we can, you know, um, you know, provide great value. We can provide great value in terms of chronotherapy because one of the things that we have that no other field has is that sleep and circadian science won the Nobel Prize in right. 2017. <laughs> But did we lose that opportunity? We stand on this great accomplishment 
And so here is it now that we can start to create strategies where we can say to pharma companies or even when we were developing these vaccines that chronotherapy is an important component. But this is why we need to also in parallel work on the metrics because if people say, yes, chronotherapy is important, give me quick and easy ways or biomarkers that we can test this. Mm -hmm. So this is why we got to have people working on that as well. So we have to have a very clear ambitious vision and strategy. I think there might be a little bit too much fragmentation in the sense that are we a sleep field that are just primarily clinicians or are we just a sleep field that's scientists? And we see this in the bifurcation between the academy and the sleep research society. Mm. You know, and we don't need that because at the end of the day, we're not here to serve sleep. We can't serve sleep. We're serving people. Right. No, no, you're exactly right. And and you've you've kind of put a thought in my head, you know, on uh on my committee, we have patients on our committee. Brilliant it, idea. Well, and this is the first time, you know, at least in my involvement that this has happened. And one conversation we had was just around restless leg syndrome. Yeah. And I remember asking one of our patient representatives and I said, well, would you think to go to a sleep physician for restless leg syndrome? And he said, never. Yeah. And first of all, people would say, there's a sleep specialist. <laughs> and I mean, and, and this is why I'm saying the, the analogy that I use with the kids in the front of the class, because when people ask us, yes, how much sleep should I get? And they're like, duh, like you should know it's seven to eight hours, seven to nine hours. And we cannot assume that. Right. We can't. Right. And so bringing in, bringing in patients, bringing in the community that you have done is absolutely critical. We did that with disruptors this past, um, yes. this past cycle. We brought in, thanks to you, a patient providing a perspective. And we wish we could have brought in more patient voices. He actually really enjoyed himself. Good. Uh, we, we enjoyed him too. He kept all of us, you know, so-called big wig scientists and clinicians in check, you know, because we can't be too abstract with our ideas and our vision. And this is critical, right? Where people think innovation, they think abstract innovation. No, we are talking um, innovation that is real. We're trying to bring things to the fingertips of people. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today and really for showing us that innovation doesn't require an IT degree. You know, you really help inspire me and you encourage all of us to continue to reimagine healthcare. It was really my honor and pleasure. Um, and I really hope that whoever is listening, your audience, will join this coalition, this movement. It's coming, folks. <laughs> and I think we are we are here we we are at the right position to do this and I applaud you for amplifying this type of message and congratulations again on this wonderful wonderful opportunity and platform that you have and well, we know you. that you'll be a great steward of this I am rooting you on keep <laughs> I was rooting for you for disruptors and I believe you can still Sign up uh, to watch Disruptors if, if people haven't already Absolutely. had the ability to. It was fantastic. I really Absolutely. enjoyed it. 
We wanted it to be a TED Talk-like of atmosphere. It's a pity it was virtual. We had panels. We didn't have the, the, the luminary keynote speaker per se because we wanted it to be a conversation. We wanted to see different slivers of perspectives and have these people talk to each other. And the beautiful thing that has come out of this is that these folks, after the presenters, they have been chatting with each other and coming up with really brilliant, great ideas. If that was the result of sleep medicine disruptors, then we would have done our job. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.